This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. It's not news to journalists that people who do PR and communications for the state heavily outnumber the reporters who report on the agencies employing them. They also get fatter pay packets on average as well, and taxpayers are footing the bill for it all. But new numbers on that crunched by RNZ show the spending is surging, and reporter Phil Pennington tells us those figures weren't easy to get. But before all that, 40 years ago this week, scientists met in the US to discuss carbon dioxide and the climate. It was a milestone moment that led to the first comprehensive report on climate change science. But 40 years later, broadcasters here are still rejecting science for scepticism. New Zealanders are more concerned about climate change than ever before. But only half of us know what we personally need to do to make a difference. What's worse, only half of us believe our actions will be effective. Tom McRae has the latest in our Because It Matters series and joins us now. Tom. Yes, well, when it comes to climate change stories, they're normally all doom and gloom. But there is room to be optimistic. News Hub at 6 last Wednesday night with news of rising public concern in New Zealand about climate change. And two days later, the country's biggest publisher of news, Stuff, announced on Friday it's joined more than 60 other media outlets around the world in a big new global bid to boost coverage of the issue. Stuff's editor-in-chief Patrick Crudson said that the aim of this is to make the realities of climate change feel urgent, tangible and unignorable for New Zealanders. But while Stuff certainly sounds serious about this, and News Hub badged it as an issue that matters, some broadcasters here have been giving out much more mixed messages about whether it really is urgent and what we should believe. The phrase fake news is about news that's not real. It's not man- it's, it's manufactured, pardon me. It's not entirely as reported. Uh, fake news is real stuff, and it degrades the quality of the organisations uh, who peddle it. That was News Talk ZB presenter Tim Wilson on his afternoon show The Hour last Monday. And those were good points about fake news. And Tim Wilson told his listeners he's got a nose for it. No, that doesn't seem right. No, I don't, don't know about that. I don't know if I'll buy that. I've started to do this with stories on the effects of climate change. But what was worrying Tim Wilson specifically last Monday? But when I I read something like I did recently, get a note of this, about California's wildfires, then I started to do that test. Apparently California's wildfires, are read, they're getting bigger every year and since uh, 1972, the area that burns every summer, it's grown by 800%. And the cause is hotter summers and the cause is climate change, apparently. Interesting. But where did Tim Wilson find out about that? Well, possibly from a colleague at NZME, the New Zealand Herald writer Simon Wilson. In his Herald column three days earlier, Simon Wilson had said, the biggest climate change problem in this country is the National Party. And this provoked a bit of debate in the media, including on Tim Wilson's other ZB show, The Weekend Collective, last Sunday. So Simon Wilson saying that National's position on climate change will undermine our economy, damage us socially. He says delays now will lead to crisis management later and the people worst affected will include farmers, coastal dwellers and the poor. He also says National says it knows we have to combat, combat climate change but undermines every effort to address the issue. But what's all that got to do about California's wildfires? Well, Simon Wilson's article about climate change politics here ended with this. Since 1972, the area that burns every summer has grown by 800%. Bigger, fiercer fires caused by summers that are 1.8 degrees Celsius warmer. 
It might not sound like much, but heat has an exponential effect on fire. We've already seen the same thing in Christchurch's Port Hills and near Nelson. We'll keep seeing it. Well, plenty of other articles overseas have also stated that climate change is the reason that California's wildfires were five times or even eight times bigger than in previous years this year. But on News Talk ZB on Monday, that didn't pass Tim Wilson's sniff test. But guess what? That's only half the story. Have a listen to this uh, from Chuck DeVore in Forbes last year. Uh, California's deadliest wildfires have been decades in the making with overlapping environmental rules, both state and federal, making fuel load reductions in forests. Now, fuel load is the stuff that fires feed on. It's bark, trees, underbrush, dry, grassy fields. Those federal environmental regulations and local ones have made reducing the fuel load in California's forests nearly impossible. And hostility towards commercial timber harvesting has allowed a massive build-up in tree density and brush with a concurrent reduction of access roads and fire breaks. Hence, there are more fires. So greeny policies and sustainability, not clearing away the fuel load, not cutting down the trees, have contributed to California's massive wildfire season. Well, that's one reading of what happened in California. It's the one President Trump repeats when asked about the issue. And who's the writer that Tim Wilson found so convincing in that piece in business publication Forbes? Well, here he is on Fox News for a recent interview, which really could have done with a bit of a sniff test too. Uh, We we can't just chalk it up as CNN tells me to to climate change. Well, that's correct. Well, this has to do with uh, active forest management. Uh, This was something that was curtailed in the 1990s. But a quick online search reveals that the forest management theory is hotly contested by experts, to say the least, and also that Chuck DeVore works for an outfit called the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which runs a project called Fueling Freedom, which promotes what it calls the forgotten moral case for fossil fuels. Its website says... This project will redefine the public conversation around fossil fuels and especially their positive role in society. And Chuck DeVore would be delighted that he's been talked about on New Zealand's top commercial talk radio station this past week. His foundation's donors include the oil companies Chevron and ExxonMobil and companies owned by the billionaire Koch brothers. The Fueling Freedom campaign was run by Kathleen Hartnett-White, who also argued that increased carbon dioxide levels are actually good for life on Earth, that renewable energy is green folly and that fossil fuels actually helped end slavery. None of that, though, was mentioned by Tim Wilson on News Talk ZB last Monday. But California's fires weren't the only climate story sniff tested by Tim Wilson on News Talk ZB that day. Now, some of this is real, but a lot of it is fake. If you remember the stuff about uh, David Attenborough's walruses, who were flinging themselves off cliffs. This was in the, um, the, the, the series Our Planet uh, out on Netflix. There was a controversy about that. Well, yes, there was, but David Attenborough's walruses, as Tim Wilson put it there, were not flinging themselves off cliffs. Those walruses slid and tumbled to their deaths at a place in Russia where they'd once migrated to live on ice flows which are no longer there. And awful scenes of that were described by Sir David Attenborough like this on Netflix's Our Planet. Once at the top of the 80-metre cliffs, they rest until it's time to return to the sea in search of food. One's going to go... 
There's one right on the edge. In a special behind-the-scenes type video later released by Netflix, natural history producer Sophie Lanfear shed a tear while saying this. It's a sad reality of climate change. Um, they'd be on the ice right now if they could be. But climate change was nothing to do with it, according to Tim Wilson on Newstalk ZB last Monday, again citing a single expert. Walruses have shown similar behaviour, have a listen to this, on the US coastline when space and ice were not an issue. And the reason is unknown. That's uh, Laurie Polisek from the University of Alaska Fairbanks. You would think someone who knows a bit about walruses. Tim Wilson was reading aloud there from a science story in Atlantic Monthly called Why Are Walruses Walking Off Cliffs? Professor Polisek also said in that article dozens of male walruses were seen falling from cliffs in southwestern Alaska in 1994, 95 and 96, but at that time there was no shortage of ice there. And that too was widely quoted in many other articles casting doubt on our planet's conclusions about climate change and stating that climate change was a red herring in that story. But Sophie Lanfear's crew in Russia had filmed hundreds of walruses that had plummeted and died from much higher cliffs because of more intense crowding than had ever been seen before at that location. In the same story in the Atlantic, the US Fish and Wildlife Service said the scenario was most likely connected to global warming. And another walrus expert from the very same University of Alaska, Professor Nicole Masati, told the Atlantic the situation was complicated, but climate change is affecting the walruses. But strangely, those quotes were not nearly as widely re-reported elsewhere or mentioned by Tim Wilson last Monday on News Talk ZB. And on Monday, Tim Wilson had this conclusion for his listeners. Now, climate change is real. I get that. But getting hysterical about fake effects doesn't help us, and it certainly doesn't help the planet. Well, Tim Wilson is right about that. Like fake news, hysteria is not helpful, and we should call it out when we see it. And with that in mind... This was Mike Hosking on his show the same morning on the same station. Hosking. Speaking of which, in Berkeley, in California, which is about as left-leaning as you can possibly get. California, of course, left-leaning generally, but Berkeley is left-leaning of the left-leaners. Anyway, they've uh, banned gas. Natural gas gone. Just banned. Councils uh, voted that there's no more gas in Berkeley. First city in America to ban natural gas. From new homes, businesses, including restaurants. Can you believe it? The measure does allow for exemptions that city officials deem to be in the public interest and existing homes and restaurants can carry on cooking with gas for now. But Mike Hosking wasn't letting the facts get in the way of a good climate beat-up. It's the cheapest gas by a considerable margin, but everyone's out now buying electric heaters and electric stoves because the idiots who run Berkeley want to save the planet. I'm worried about my wood-fired pizzas. The energy lobby has targeted Berkeley over the politics of this using similar language. But in fact, the city is only getting ahead of the curve in California. The entire state is likely to ban new natural gas hookups in the push towards carbon neutrality by 2045. The LA Times, for example, reports that another 50 urban authorities in the state are planning the same move. So there must be idiots all over California following Mike Hosking's logic. Meanwhile, ZB's sister station Radio Sport had already created some hot air about climate change earlier that same morning. On the early edition of the rural show The Country, host Jamie Mackay complained bitterly to the Minister for Primary Industries, Damien O'Connor, about an educational display at Tapapa which pointed out that fewer cows in this country would mean less greenhouse gas. Maybe we could have more interactive displays in Tapapa which teach the young school children of this nation to dislike farmers.
Oh, look, I, I just picked up on that this morning, and uh, you know, a whole again, a whole beat up. If, if people get so sensitive to stuff like that, it may not be entirely accurate. The kids may take one little part of a, a message from that or not. Uh, yeah, but know, what sort of message is it? What sort of Hold message on. is it for a young New Zealander? Click on the cow. That's my understanding. I haven't seen it either. You click on the cow, it goes away. You save the planet. That's not a no, good I message. Don't, I don't think it does that. I think the implication is you have less cows and people are getting upset about that. Well, it's kind of logical. It's a bit like if you have less cars, there'll be less emissions. So really just science and maths, in other words. And soon after that, Jamie Mackay raised this with one of the show's regular contributors, Jane Smith, a North Otago farmer who earlier this month claimed that she was declaring a political stupidity emergency. We talk about water quality. I'm worried about polluting young minds here. These little kids go in and they press an interactive screen with less dairy on it and then hoorah, up on the screen comes success. You have made uh, a carbon zero future. And I do worry that the government, especially the Greens, uh, are on an out-and-out anti-farming crusade. And the other thing that sticks in my craw, if you want, is the fact that if we're going to get rid of all the cows in this country and become a robotic orchard, as David Parker wants us to be... How are we going to pay our way? Exactly, Jamie. And I'm actually looking forward to um, suggesting that they put another button there that says, congratulations, you've just made your economy by 2050 $300 billion worse off. But when it comes to sceptical opinions on climate change, News Talk ZB's godfather is Leighton Smith, who's no longer on the air but still producing a weekly column for The Herald and a podcast for News Talk ZB. He wrapped up this week's podcast, referring his listeners to the online work of one of his favourite climate sceptics. Ed Berry, Edwin Berry, and you'll find him very easily. He is a physicist and climate scientist. And they're coming out of the woodwork now, folks. Scientific American magazine says Edwin Berry not only reckons human carbon dioxide emissions don't contribute to climate change, he's called Islam a death cult on his Twitter account and even encouraged motorists to drive into protesters. Indeed, his Twitter account currently carries conspiracy theory stuff about Hillary Clinton and George Soros and a Muslim Brotherhood plot to destroy America and plenty more besides. Meanwhile, on rival talk station Magic Talk, which used to call itself the new voice of talk radio, climate change was also driving the drive show last Monday. Host Ryan Bridge dumped the facts altogether, declaring climate change to be a religion, just an article of faith and not something to be settled by science. I don't believe in climate change. I don't not believe in climate change. I I think it's probably happening. And I think it's probably man-made. I can't prove that to you. And I don't think many people can. So are we all, in that sense, a bit like Catholics? Believing in God. Um, Rossell is here. Hi, Rossell. Boy, you're not wrong there. It's like a religion. Now, on the same station, Magic Talk, the morning host Peter Williams wanted his audience to know where he stood too last week, setting out his stall in a piece online under a heading stating that the science isn't settled. Peter Williams said he found plenty of stuff online arguing that was the case, and he too went on to refer his readers to some of the sceptical stuff he found online that he reckoned was convincing. And last Monday, he was still asking his callers what they reckoned and presenting a nasty, brutish and short vision of our future. Uh, this one could turn around and bite us on the bum because we've only got one atmosphere. 
That's true. Yeah, but we've only got one planet, too, in terms of the number of people who can be supported on it. And I think it's going to be natural selection at some time or a, a natural uh, process at some time in the not-too-distant future, which will, the Earth will say, the planet will say, no, no more people. Now that and all of the sceptical stuff you've heard in the programme so far this morning was aired on the country's two top commercial talk radio stations in just one day last Monday. Last week some national MPs took to social media to claim that some popular cars would go up in price under the government's new freebate policy in 2021. Labour's car tax they called it and it would run into thousands of dollars they said in what was a coordinated online campaign. Stuff's outgoing political editor Stacey Kirk noted that the National Party's Facebook page showed two paid political ads on this were running. Now, this angered Transport Minister Julianne Genta, who climbed into the MP's personal Facebook feeds to rebut the National Party's claims. Stacey Kirk criticised Julianne Genta for spending too much time on Facebook and then said that the minister had taken explaining as losing to a new level. Now, even a journalist who takes the politics of climate change seriously didn't see any point in pointing out spin from point-scoring politicians. And as it happens, Stacey Kirk's leaving political journalism now to take up a brand new job at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Now, one of MFAT's jobs is to account for how we're meeting our emissions targets, or not, in international forums. And if we fall behind the rest of the developed world on this explaining as losing won't be an option for MFAT. Indeed, it won't be an option either for talk radio broadcasters who now put hosts on the air who airily admit they don't really understand the science of climate change. It's not news anymore that people who do PR and communications for the state heavily outnumber the journalists who report on the agencies employing them. And every journalist also knows that most of those on the so-called dark side also get far fatter pay packets than most of them and their colleagues in the media. But this week, RNZ's reporter Phil Pennington revealed new numbers that show the gap has become a chasm. While journalist numbers have been on the way down for years, the spending and hiring of government ministries has surged, and so has the cost to the taxpayer. And here's how he reported that on Morning Report last Wednesday. RNZ has crunched the numbers from annual reviews to Parliament from two dozen major government departments and agencies. These show some have doubled the numbers of communications staff in a single year, some are stable, and the overall trend is up. At many, salaries above $100,000 are common. So, big numbers and big bucks there. And Phil Pennington had plenty more startling sums. The New Zealand Transport Agency, for example, doubled its communication staff from 30 to 60 in just one year, 2018. And nine of those people earn more than $120,000 a year. Now, many ministries hired contractors for communications tasks as well, paying as much as $300,000 for some specific projects. Now, that's easily enough pay to attract journalists who have many of the required skills. But some of the business told Phil Pennington that state sector salaries for all this had now become so big that they're pulling in PR people from private sector employers as well. And while the taxpayer fits the growing bill for all of this, veteran journalist and journalism professor Jim Tully told Phil Pennington it often means that the media, and by extension the public, actually get less of the information that's in the public interest because it might be inconvenient to the organisations involved. There's been a huge emphasis on trying to get the best possible coverage and to minimise anything negative. I mean, that's, in fact, it's an exception if an organisation doesn't have a media policy that is highly restrictive. 
Now, the public relations industry, for its part, says all this growth is necessary, as people these days expect far more information ever more quickly, and that includes the digital age media, for whom daily deadlines are now a thing of the past. But another interesting aspect of this story is just how hard it was for Phil Pennington to get the numbers in the first place before he was able to crunch them. Yeah, that's right, Colin. I think the footnotes could have been a lot longer. The annual reviews themselves are pretty accessible on the parliamentary site, and you would expect them to be so. They're put in by all the different agencies, so there's a lot of them. They're not just the departments. You're talking scores and scores of these things, like Transpower. You know, you've got MSD and and then the police, and then you've got Transpower. All the DHBs put them in. Mm -hmm. So they're all there, although I say they're all there. I did have trouble finding even some of those. These are lists of like 200 questions that each department answers. They're pretty pro forma ones. Um, this is from uh, parliamentary from committees. From the par- parliamentary mm-hmm. committees. So it's time-consuming and it is slightly patchy, but you do get an overall, and we did from the collation of the figures get an overall idea of the, the thrust, the rapid rise of these numbers of comms teams and, and the cost of them. There's different rules about disclosure um, and the way the information presented, depending on whether it's a ministry a state agency or some sort of other enterprise or something like a a district health board? I was focusing on the major ministries and then some of the biggest agencies. So you look like the transport agency, the police, uh, defence force, which are not uh, core departments. Um, In terms of like finding out more about that, um, some of the processes of trying to do that, they're, they're quite uneven answers in what they supply, even though the questions are pretty stock standard. Like let's take an example, uh, Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment, now, I was trying to find out its salary bans, but what it was paying people. Now, those there is a question in the review that says, please give us what your staff are paid by salary ban. This is PR and comm staff. Mm-hmm. And going back over the last four years, nothing in MB's uh, review about that, um, even though it's explicitly asked for. I asked why not. I wasn't told. I was eventually provided with those salary bans in an email on July the 19th after asking for it on June the 22nd. When I asked about um, what they were pay, spending on uh, public PR and comms contractors, that also wasn't there. Yeah, this is a fascinating area, isn't it? Yeah. It says in your story, uh, they're now using more contractors, but their salaries aren't always accounted for in the annual reviews. A government push for much clearer reporting on spending of all types of contractors is yet to filter mm. through fully. Another fascinating quote here, Elaine Collar from the Public Relations Institute. Um, the numbers available to the public are themselves unreliable. Under a previous cap on core staff numbers, departments hid communication staff under different categories and were only now reassigning them. Yeah, that was interesting that she said that. Elaine Collar of the PR Institute, the head of that, she said that uh, her experience was that in the public relations, that because under the government cap, they seem to have what they've done was put different codes on some comms people so that they didn't show up as comms people. But once the cap was lifted by the Labour-led government, they've now been able to bring them in and count them as comms people. Now, I don't quite know how that would work because they would still show up as their total staff numbers, but anyway, that's what she says has has been going on. And she says that's one, one reason why these teams have been growing, perhaps in the last one or two years, just in terms of what Elaine Collar and the PR Institute were saying, that was actually backed up by a, a journalist, a leading journalist, Patrick Smelly, who also commented to us. He said there's been a proliferation of tasks that comms people do. So that might explain a rise in teams. But equally, he said that government is becoming more risk-averse and there's these huge feedback loops, which include comms teams, of multiple checks that are made along, which he said ultimately often result in a very slow response to, say, a media inquiry and a very vanilla response that we can't use anyway. So 
there's spending on comms contracts that doesn't show up in, in, in the regular searches for the spending? Very, very patchy. So some of them say we uh, employ a certain number of contractors and in a very few cases they had attached a cost to that. Um, for instance, uh, Internal Affairs, in their annual review, it says they employed 63 employees in comms and 13 contractors. Um, but even when push came to shove on that, they disputed that the, what I came up with, the figure from the annual review, shows the 36% rise in their comms staff overall between 2013 and 2018. They said, oh, no, 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 it's only 6%. They said because things were counted differently in 2013. And then they said they were also counted differently the next year in 2014 when we didn't count contractors. 2013 we did, 2014 we didn't. Uh, and then they said in 2013 we didn't specify what was full-time, what was part-time. 2018 we, we are... It all points to opaqueness, but the annual review is the place that the public would go to for this, right? Mm -hmm. And the annual review clearly says 63 employees, 13 contractors. And when I pushed it and I said, so your 6% figure that you're saying rise between 2013 and 2018, does that count contractors? No. And this actually comes back with MB to the original problem with um, the transparency of these things. And this came out at the end of 2017, a spreadsheet was leaked to business desk by someone within MB, which showed that they were employing this many contractors, it was 2,500, and that it was costing almost twice as much as what MB said in the annual review. And after that came out, the State Services Commission stepped in and it issued new rules last year to force government departments to make it clearer in this reporting, in these annual reviews, what they're spending on contractors. But as you can see from my experience here, you still can't find those figures in most cases. However, they are only counting 31 core departments, and they do not cover three of the largest six communications teams. They don't cover the transport agency, which doubled its comms team in one year, from 2016-17 to 2017-18, from 30 to 60 people. They don't cover the Defence Force, mm -hmm. which has got over 30 people in comms, and they don't cover the Police Force, which has got over 30 people in comms. What do you make of the public relations uh, industry's argument that this is needed? This is There's growing demand for information both within these organisations and outside them, the public. There's a whole digital media that didn't exist in years gone by, so they need increased numbers of comms and PR stuff. So Elaine Collins, Collins, she's talked about three things. So it's technology, okay, social media platforms, and I think it was um, MFAT said to us they have got, I think they said 100 different social media channels. That's a lot, okay. Um, she also said there's more stakeholder communication going on. What she means is that MPI, for instance, talking to farmers and f you know fisher people as opposed to just talking to the media. Mm. And there's also um, a lot more internal communications going on. Quite what that is, I don't really know. We know that they have these glossy publications that go out. In terms of the media, she said that that's actually static, that these teams typically only have 10% of their people who interact with the media. And I know at uh, Counties Monaco DHB, who come under this, they only have one of their 10 people who's a media person. So she says that's actually static. And that would actually make sense because, of course, the journalists who are asking the questions, our numbers are falling. You've been looking for some time now at Substandard Steel, and the inspection and certification of that. So a story like that, are you finding more uh, people either to be helpful with your requests or to frustrate them? 
the communication, the growth in these on the tech front, on the stakeholder front, on the internal front, it's all on their terms. Right. And I, I think with the media, we are also seeing this on their terms. And I'll give you some examples. Police used to have a lot of regional communications people. They centralised that in the last few years. We have to now go through one source. That is negative for the media in terms of who we talk to, but also possibly for the police. We're not hearing from as many police officers as we did. Another example, MB. Just this week, I went to them and I wanted an interview about a disarray in their leading building product certification scheme. It's in disarray. It's a serious problem. They came back to me and said, we're going to give you a statement. I said, why not an interview? No reason was given. I asked them, why aren't you prioritising that? Again, no reason is given. You know, and this reflects what our Professor Jim Tully told me. He said, you know, there's this been an increasing huge focus on micromanaging to control any negative info and only give out positive. And one reason they do this with statements and don't front up is that it's very hard to interrogate a statement. And if, if the public relations uh, industry says these people are needed because the flow of information, the demand for it is much greater – would you think that that actually isn't something that requires increasing numbers of journalists to be hired with those skills? It actually requires just tech people, data people, people that can just put out the information. As Jim Tully said, if this is leading to a more informed public, good. But his experience is it's the opposite. But where is the research into, is it helping the public? Is it informing them more? That's, as far as I could tell, there's not being done. I'd, I'd love it if somebody would say, yeah, hey, yeah, I am. I'm actually looking into that. It'd be great. And finally, Phil, just this week, uh, a new tool released by Stats NZ. It's called Where Do Your Rates Go? So uh, people in their area can click on the website and see a little data visualisation of how their uh, local councils are spending their money. Now, there's one category there just called employee costs. So we're guessing that's as, as detailed as we could get into um, what might be a similar mushrooming of comms and PR teams at local government level. So do you think that's an area we need to look at? Yeah, that's very wide and undifferentiated, isn't it, Colin? And doesn't really help if you want to drill, drill down, which is what I think we should actually start doing. So uh, it's great that they've got that new tool, but I'm wondering, and we will be asking the State Services Commission why they haven't made that more explicit. Not, and not just in comms, they perhaps should be finding out more also in terms of um, Compliance staff, it would be interesting to know what is going on there because we know that there are problems in terms of uh, water consenting and that sort of thing. Um, so to know those staff numbers and what's happening to those would be useful for the public. Do you think the public needs to know um, what their local government is spending on communications and public relations? It may be an indication that actually they're taking it more seriously, engaging with the public and decided to prioritise spending on that. Yeah, it could be, as in all these things, if it's leading to a good result and more informed public, as uh, the commentators have said, that's great. Um, I think the public need to know because then they can say this is what's been spent and our experience is it's going up or it's going down. One problem with uh, local government is because of the drop in journalist numbers is that local government meetings aren't being covered very much and that means it, perhaps the councils are feeling the need to step into the void. Now, if that's good, that's great, except it's on their own terms and, of course, everything will get a polish and everything will look rosy, probably everything will look rosy and we won't find out about the stuff that they don't want us to know. So we need more journalists, uh, perhaps less comms people. The ratio in 2013 was 8 to 1. In 2001, it was 2 to 1. I don't know what it is now. We need those figures from the census, but it's had its own problems. But, you know, it's only going up in terms of PR versus uh, journalism. And finally, 
if you were to repeat this exercise in like, I don't know, say three or five years' time, do you think you'll have to go through this whole exercise again of trying to disentangle publicly available documents like those uh, parliamentary committee reviews? It might, might be easy because the State Service Commission, or what you said about that tool, that new tool, but also the thing uh, last year when they said to the government departments, report more clearly on your contract to spending. Those are signs of hope. Signs that aren't of hope is a almost like a control freakery thing within the communication departments of, of the different agencies. I think they have to get over that. I think they have to. That has to come from the top. And also, like Patrick Smelly said, if the minister ministers think that their agencies are spending too much on communications, they need to give the message to rein this back in. That was RNZ reporter Phil Pennington, who was named Reporter of the Year at this year's Voyager Media Awards. And he was talking to me there about crunching the numbers on state spending on PR and communications people and how hard it was to get those numbers. And there's more in his online story for rnz.co.nz. Just look for the title, Government Public Relations Teams Rapidly Expanding. And more from his chat with me about all that is in the online version of this story on the Media Watch section of the RNZ website or the RNZ app. Just look for the title, Running the Numbers on Public Service PR. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show with Midweek Media Watch. And then, back with Media Watch at the same time next Sunday, here on RNZ National.